Thanks for downloading this podcast from Burghead Free Church in Murray, Scotland. We exist to know Jesus and make Jesus known. Our vision is to grow to be a vibrant all-age church of 100 disciples. Find out more at burgheadfreechurch.org. One Kings chapter eight, starting at verse twenty-two. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel, spread out his hands towards heaven, and said, "Lord, the God of Israel, there is no god like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants, who continue wholeheartedly in your way." You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. With your mouth you have promised, and with your hand you have fulfilled it, as it is today. Now, Lord, the God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, the promises you made to him when you said, You shall never fail to have a successor to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your descendants are careful in all they do, to walk before me faithfully as you have done. And now, God of Israel, let your word that you promised to your servant David, my father, come true. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open towards this temple night and day, this place of which you said, My name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays towards this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. This is the word of the Lord. I was wondering this week about uh, getting an audience with the Queen. Um, I've never met her, and uh, maybe more to the point, her Madge has never met me. I'm sure we'd have a lot to talk about. Um, We're we're both landowners. Um, Admittedly, she has a little bit more than me, but maybe she could give me some advice on keeping the weeds down in our little patch of garden. She has the corgis, but I've got Misty, the cockapoo. Um, Plus, we both have large and occasionally disorderly families. Anyway, I was looking up on the, the palace website, and sadly, it turns out the criteria for getting an audience uh, with Liz are pretty tight. Um, it's mainly um, ambassadors or high commissioners who are granted an audience, although the site did say that some military personnel and religious leaders might occasionally be invited. So maybe I do have a chance, and I'll let you know if me and Liz ever do get together. The fundamental problem, of course, is that meeting royalty is not really for plebs like you and me. The king, quite rightly, is too high and lofty and far too busy to deal with the likes of me. But here's a serious question. If you and I can't even get close to the Queen of the United Kingdom, what hope could we possibly have of getting close to the God who is the King 
of the whole universe. If you've been a Christian or if you've knocked around in the church for any length of time, you've no doubt got very used to this idea that we can be close to God and we can know him and speak to him. And maybe you've totally lost your sense of awe that we could do that. Well, this passage today, on the one hand, will restore our awe at the majesty of God, but it will also restore our wonder at the closeness of God to his people. So as we look at uh, 1 Kings chapter 8 today, here is our first heading. The God we praise. One of the challenges of these chapters in 1 Kings is that they are so long, we we couldn't read it all now. As I said, Keith just read a section. We are going to try and tackle the whole of chapter 8. Remember, the backstory is that the glorious temple of Solomon that he was building, has now been finished. And so the king gathers the the elders and the leaders and all the people from across the, the great nation, and there's a great ceremony as the Ark of the Covenant is brought in to the new temple. It's like the opening ceremony, if you like. In fact, it says, though, in verse 3, when all the elders of Israel had arrived, the priests took up the Ark And they brought up the ark of the Lord and the tent of meeting and all the sacred furnishings in it. Isn't it interesting? They take the whole of the tent of meeting, that is the tabernacle, to the temple. Now the tent, of course, is what they had before the temple. That was where the ark was kept. That was where the presence of God symbolically dwelt. But like any tent, it was a temporary movable home. The Israelites had carried it through the wilderness. Add to that that this temple dedication happens at the same time as the Feast of Tabernacles, which was the feast commemorating those wilderness wanderings. And you have this kind of lovely symmetry. The people of Israel have wandered in the wilderness They and their God have had temporary homes in tents, but now the temple is finished and it symbolizes God's permanent home among them in the land he promised. So, uh, picture the moment, thousands of people are gathered, the finished temple, there it is on the screen, stands before them. These people who gathered would never have seen anything So glorious, so grand, so enormous as this. A beautiful temple in dressed stone. Magnificent timber, sparkling gold, precious stones. Tens of thousands of people have spent seven years and an extraordinary cost in lavish resources on building what is quite literally one of the wonders of the world. And so as they stood before it on that opening day... You might expect that there'd be lots of speeches about the temple and how great it was, maybe documenting the the building process or the achievement of the construction, or or maybe praising Solomon, uh, who had led the building. But no, what is remarkable is that you get none of that. Instead, all of the attention and everything that is said focuses not on the building, but on God. Verse 10 now. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, 
And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. And when Solomon begins to speak, his first, the first words out of his mouth are not to praise the building, but instead, verse 15, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. This is the God that we praise, the God who enters his temple, did you notice, in a cloud. In other words, God is mysterious and awesome and holy. He is high above us and way beyond us and we must bow down before him. Notice how even the priests had to flee away out when his presence came in. God is not your mate or your pal. He's not one of us. He's not like us. We must bow before him in holy awe and in reverent fear. And we must remember that that you and I have no right to know him. We have no right to be near him, no right to belong to him, no right to have access to him. That is our God, holy and awesome. And if that is not your God, then you're not worshipping the true God, the God of the Bible. Again, notice even the priests flee away as God's presence comes down. And thereafter, only the high priest, only once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and only after significant cleansing could go back into the holy place. The temple, of course, brings together two amazing truths. That the God up there, that the high and holy one, has also come to be the God down here. The God with us. To use the fancy language, the transcendent God has also become the imminent God. The faraway God has come close to his people. And you see this best captured in verse 27. Have a look there. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I have built. In other words, God is high and holy. He's far above us. And yet, verse 28, Solomon says, Give attention to your servant's prayer. And his plea for mercy, Lord my God, hear the prayer and the cry that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open towards this temple day and night. Do you see it? The God up there, through this system of the temple, has come to be the God down here. The God who will listen to us and hear us. The God that we, his people, can access. In its purest form, that's what was enjoyed, of course, in the Garden of Eden. Man walking with God in close fellowship. And that, of course, is exactly what has been ruined by our sin. Now the God up there is distanced from us because we cannot be near him. Because in our sin, we would simply be consumed by his holiness. But now what's pictured in the temple 
that God has come down, for us, this has become an even greater reality in Jesus. More than in the temple, in Jesus these things come together. Jesus, the God up there, has come to be the God down here. Has come to be Emmanuel, we say at Christmas. God with us, walking with us. And so in, in that way, the temple, like so many other things in this book of 1 Kings, the temple, in the end, is just another signpost. It's just another signpost that points us on to Jesus. The temple, of course, was the place of sacrifice. Jesus came to make the ultimate sacrifice on the altar, if I can put it that way, of the cross. To make a way for us to be close to God. I wonder if you're watching today and you have yet to trust in Jesus. To, to take hold for yourself of what Jesus did on the cross. To accept that gift that he offers you of having your sins paid for, your guilt atoned for, and your slate wiped clean. That is what we all need. That's what Jesus offers you today. Will you take it? That's the God we praise, but next, number two, there's the help we need. Now, this chapter could easily just be a sort of grand picture of God, but it does more than that. It gets down into the nitty-gritty of our lives today. What does it mean for a holy, awesome God to be with fragile, sinful people? Well, one of the things that it means is that we are constantly in need, in need of his help and his blessing and his provision, but most of all, we're constantly in need of his ongoing forgiveness if we're going to live in relationship with him. The nearness of God that's pictured in the temple and fulfilled in Jesus means us coming to him in constant prayer, living in relationship. And Solomon's prayer makes that point so clearly. This is verse 31 to verse 50. We won't go through every line, but essentially what happens there is that Solomon lays out example after example. He goes through different circumstances in life when we will need God's intervention and help. For example, verse 31, when anyone wrongs their neighbor and is required to take an oath and they come and swear the oath before your altar in this temple, then hear from heaven and act. Judge between your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing down on their heads what they have done and vindicating the innocent by treating them in accordance with their innocence. Translation, when sinful people live together, they're going to sin against each other. And so we need God's justice. Or, verse 33 now, when your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn back to you and give praise to your name, praying and making supplication to you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land you gave to their ancestors. Translation, God's people in their foolishness will continue to sin. And when we do, by the way, God will not always protect us from the earthly consequences of our sin. In this case, getting defeated in battle, but it could be anything else. But, when, but then we must turn back to him in wholehearted repentance. 
Or, verse 37, and this one's quite topical, when famine or plague comes to the land, whatever disaster or disease may come, and when a prayer or a plea is made by anyone among your people, Israel, be aware of the afflictions of their own hearts and, and spreading out their hands towards this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place, forgive and act. This is a reminder, by the way, that when calamity comes on a national scale, be it a, a famine or a plague, how should we respond? Well, we should consider the possibility that God is disciplining us. At very least, we should use it as an opportunity to examine our hearts and repent of our sin and turn back to him. And by the way, this is a reminder that we are not the first to live, live through a time of plague, nor will we be the last. In other words, all of this is the Christian life. We don't just come to God once and, and pray a single prayer and call it a day. No, the Christian life is an ongoing cycle of repentance and faith and repentance and faith, of continually bringing ourselves and our sin to God, of continually seeking his forgiveness and his renewing and his help to obey. Is that your life today as a Christian? Are you living in that constant relationship with God? Are you continuing to bring yourself and your sin to him for forgiveness? But we do all of this longing, point three, for the day that is coming. The God we praise, the help we need, the day that's coming. Now, it would be easy to miss this, but I think it's worth pausing here. Now we've got to chapter eight and the temple is built. Just pause to notice something. All of the imagery in the temple, we saw this from chapter 6 to chapter 8, all of the imagery in the temple points us back to the Garden of Eden and points us forward to the new creation. Now that might sound a little bit odd, let me explain. There are these links between Eden and the temple and the new creation. There are lots we could look at, but here's a couple of examples. First example gold. We're told that in Eden, Genesis 2.11, that there is gold. You can look up these verses later if you like. The temple, 1 Kings chapter 6, is full of gold. And then the new Jerusalem, that is the new creation where those who trust in Jesus are heading, has many, many references to gold. You can see one of them there on the screen. Why? Well, at one level, all these references to gold just tell us that these are precious or important places. But more than that, it links all three together. Do you see the temple is a reminder of the Garden of Eden, where we had intimate fellowship with God. And it's a pointer to the new creation, when we will at last enjoy that again. So there's gold. Or take trees and fruit. The Garden of Eden is full of trees and fruit. They are pleasing to the eye and good to eat, we are told. In the temple, and look it up later in 1 Kings chapter 6, you have images of trees and fruit. You even get pomegranates carved into the great pillars. 
And then, of course, in the new creation, there are great trees as well. For example, the tree of life on the great river that flows out of the city, Revelation 22, verse 2. Why? Well, again, at one level, trees tell us symbolically that these are places of God's provision. But it's more than that. It links all three together. Do you see? The temple is a reminder of the Garden of Eden where we had intimate fellowship with God and a pointer to the new creation when we will at last enjoy that again. And so as we live for Jesus today, in all the pains and with all the problems of this life, we live with a longing. We pray, come Lord Jesus. We long to be with him in his beautiful new creation, where all who trust in him as Savior and Lord will find their place, and where we will at last have close, intimate uninterrupted fellowship with the God that we were made for. Fellowship that no sin can ever ruin or destroy. That's the day that's coming. But lastly, there's number four, the task at hand. This chapter stresses at least three things uh, that are so important for us in the here and now. They are the priority of God's word the need for obedience, and the place of godly ambition. First, very quickly, the priority of God's word. We've left it away behind us now, but do you remember that the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the temple? Now, the Ark is closely connected with God's presence, but the only thing considered worthy of being kept in the Ark were the stone tablets that Moses brought down from Sinai, which contained what? The Ten Commandments, or God's Word. At the very heart of this whole impressive setup in the temple is God's Word. So it begs the question, what's the place of God's Word in your life? Is it right at the heart of all you do? Or is it sidelined? And ignored. Closely linked to that, number two, there's the need for obedience to that word. We've said it before, this may be the biggest theme in the whole of this book of Kings. The kings and the people were told to listen to God and obey him. Now, ultimately, we'll see that the tragedy of Solomon and and of the people and of all the kings pretty much that, that follow him is that in the end, they didn't listen and didn't obey. That brings their downfall, and in the end, the downfall of the whole nation. Now remember, we are saved by grace, not by works. We don't earn our place with God. But don't for a moment think that that means we shouldn't obey God. We must. What areas of our lives are we holding back from obedience to God? Lastly, number three, the need for godly ambition. There's a wee verse in Solomon's uh, speech of blessing that we could easily just overlook, but I think it hides something important for us. It's verse 18, chapter 8, verse 18. But the Lord said to my father David, you did well to have it in your heart to build a temple for my name. Now, as we know it, 
it turned out that it actually wasn't God's plan for David to build the temple, but for Solomon to do so instead. But do you notice here that God commends David for his ambition to build for the kingdom of God? Did you notice that? It shows us that godly ambition is good, and it begs the question to you and I, what are we ambitious for? Are our ambitions just tied up with our own lives and with our jobs or with buying that house or affording that holiday? Um, or, or maybe these days our ambitions just amount to going shopping one day without having to wear a mask. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? But David's example shows us it's good to have godly ambitions. Ambitions to see God's kingdom built, not in the form of a building, but as we share the gospel. Is that your ambition for us here in Birkhead and in Cummingston and, in, and across Murray? Are we ambitious, as we say we are, to grow, to be a vibrant, all-age church of 100 disciples? That's what our vision statement says. Or maybe even more than that. Do you have a sense of godly ambition? Are you throwing yourself and your prayers and your money and your time and your passion and your commitment into godly ambitions, into building for his kingdom? Let's pray together, shall we? Hear these words from Acts 17. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Father, we acknowledge that everything we have is from you. That you are the great and awesome one, the high and holy one. And yet we thank you for this picture that we see in the temple that's fulfilled in Jesus, of you coming down to be with us, your people. Father, forgive us, we pray, when we've taken you too lightly or simply come to assume that we deserve your presence. Lord, we know that we don't. Lord, help us to have a greater sense of awe at your majesty and power and a greater sense of wonder at your closeness to your people through Jesus. And Lord, in all of that, we pray, give us a godly ambition to make the good news of Jesus known in this place that we live and in the lives that we lead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening. Please feel free to share this podcast. And if you'd like to be up to date with each week's talk, why not search Burkhead Free Church on your favorite podcast app and hit the subscribe button. For more information, go to burkheadfreechurch.org.